This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is light catch-up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one chosen by myself. We pick our topics from the Macon Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and more. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come to some sort of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be in our modern times. Also, if you like this podcast, the best thing you can do for it is share your favorite episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Feels like an eternity, Cherise. It has been. I don't been. know when the last time we recorded. Uh, must be over two weeks ago. Three weeks, yeah. I think. Oh my gosh. I don't think we've never gone this long without recording. Do you think people it's missed first. us? I think so. I don't know if I'm just consoling myself, but um, I would like to think so. I did notice that yeah. people shared the most recent episode real quick. So maybe they were waiting for it. Maybe. Maybe they're all caught up and they're just waiting Waiting for that new, new. Yeah. I mean, we've both been quite busy over the last, in general, like just me traveling, you traveling. Yeah. And for a little moment, I was like, oh man, like it feels good to not have the pressure of doing this. But then I just genuinely missed the conversation as well. So I think that's good. Oh, I missed it too. I missed it too. Obviously, like it was convenient because I was traveling and I didn't have to bring my recording gear, which is something Mm -hmm. I used to do whenever I traveled. But yeah, I also missed this. Yeah, It's good to have these conversations. We picked two fiery topics yeah. today. So we must be raging for a debate. Yeah. Should we just get into it? Are we starting with yours? Did you read it? Yeah, I did okay, not let's... just read yours, but I also read some other recent things by this author. And um, now I think I'm yeah. upset. I think I am upset. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's just get into it then. Yeah. And then we can... Cover all the housekeeping stuff towards the end there. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So first up, my topic is an op-ed that appeared in High Snobody, actually quite recently, just within the last 24 hours. And it's titled, The Age of Political Correctness Will Kill Great Fashion by Eugene Rabkin. And if you're unfamiliar with Eugene Rabkin's work, I would say he's he's pretty prolific. He's definitely well known for introducing a lot of interesting concepts within the realm of fashion and creative culture. He's and the editor-in-chief of Style Zeitgeist. Yes. This this op-ed itself, what it does, I mean, the title is quite self-explanatory. And as I mentioned, I think it has a lot of validity across not just fashion, but just things that are being created in general, whether it's art, um, design, etc. So the overall piece itself just focuses on the fact that in light of the way that we currently react to things of controversy, uh, bold ideas that are putting that are being put out in the world that it will effectively eliminate what he calls great fashion and it'll basically handcuff designers from taking bold leaps into really exploring concepts and ideas right that you know may or may not push people's buttons and I thought what was really interesting was uh, over the course of the piece there were some interesting insights from uh, a fellow fashion critic by the name of Angelo. Flacavento, who wrote this for Vogue Italia. So I'll read, the, I'll read the relatively long passage. It's translated from Italian. We live in violently moralistic times, destroying freedom of expression and invention in the name of a distorted idea of freedom of expression. 
Sensors are turning to fashion into something terribly intelligent and necessarily political, denying its frivolous, silly, and distracted nature. Let's be clear. The socio-political values of fashion are deep, but they are on the surface. They are aesthetic. Indeed, the more superficial fashion is, the more it triggers progress. To deny it by imposing ex cathedra lessons choked with narrow certainties is to destroy the fertile fields of free thought with Philistine arrogance. I think overall, like just to preface my my overall positioning around this, yeah, and it will definitely come through with my points. I'm sure you have some points as well. Is that undoubtedly my thought process is that no one's really denying you the opportunity to create. It's just that people are pushing back against what you create, right? And I think that is sort of the the what's triggering the fashion world is that they feel like they don't have the ability to create without worry of of someone getting offended. But yeah. I think the reality of the situation is that the fashion itself is a commercial venture, right? You're not doing this in a bubble. You're not doing it to appease yourself. You're doing this as a business and as an industry. That's something Eugene so, Rapkin says as well in this. That he does, he, he, he does, he, say he does that. also he, say that fashion is a commercial venture. Yeah, I, I, I actually make mention to that quote towards the bottom. Okay. But I think just to just to preface overall. Okay, but thanks for ba- clarifying on, your position on this. Yeah, but based on Angelo's thought, for me personally, I just feel that fashion has evolved into something that is so much more important than just something that, as you mentioned, is silly and frivolous. It's like, yeah, especially given the, the environmental impact, the role it plays in identity, all these things that I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit... How do I put this? It's denying its power by not fully embracing what it can do, right? And it's just leaving it to like, oh, it's just like something we do for fun. I think but it's I think so at this point interesting in time, that he says that by nature, fashion is frivolous, silly, and distracted. And I don't think that that is like an inherent aspect of fashion. That is like one interpretation of what it can be, but it's not inherent in what it is. It doesn't have to be that. Yeah. yeah. I think if we look at fashion as a whole, what it does really well, and since it's so predicated on trends, is that it captures the moment, right? And for fashion to not fully understand that at this moment in time, these are the things that dominate our culture and society, aka like even if social justice warriors are a bad thing, they're still representative of where we are as a culture today. Mm-hmm. And fashion itself should embrace the fact that this is where we are at this current moment in time. And I will play off that because ultimately this is where we are. Yeah. Right. And whether that remains the case in 5, 10, 15, 100 years, it's like, it's to be seen, but it it is representative of what what's going on now. And mm-hmm. I feel that fashion itself is like, has always been so good at, at bottling that essence. It's like, why is it suddenly not understood? And also, I think there's a little bit of a level of selfishness that comes with it. It's because my thought process is suddenly being checked when in the past, it wasn't. I think that that point I just made needs to have a bit more clarification. I'll go into that after some other points. Okay. Furthermore, uh, another quote from Angelo Flacavento is that in a global world, the recognition of minorities and diversity is undisputable, but awareness cannot be cultivated by force. A designer cannot create a collection by ticking every box to please everyone. In this way, no one is satisfied. Fashion is exclusive by definition. It excludes the mass to satisfy an elite, any kind of elite. Some designers talk about non-standard bodies, others about inclusiveness, others about gender fluidity. It's choice. It's individual and there's room for everyone. But I would argue that no one says you can't create these things. 
it's just that in general, like if you wish to push buttons, then at least have the balls to stand behind it. And if you're going to get pushed back against, like maybe it wasn't a good idea in the beginning, right? If someone is able to poke holes that easily and you don't believe in your idea enough to maintain your position, then to me, that's like, honestly, that's a cop out. Yeah, right? actually, I, on the surface of it, this quote, I think I agree with every statement, but mm -hmm. I don't agree with the way that I think Flacavento is wielding it, like the, um, like his argument for what we should do. But weirdly, I actually do agree with the individual statements. Like, yeah, awareness cannot be cultivated by force. I cannot, we cannot force Prada to suddenly have awareness, right? Despite like social media, um, backlash, et cetera. Yeah. And yeah, a designer cannot create something that satisfies everyone. I think like you and I would both agree with this. Like even in what we do, whatever you do is not going to please everyone. This is factual, right? And yes, I think that what you make is for a specific world. I wouldn't say an elite. I don't really like the loadedness of that word. But yes, like what you make is targeting a niche audience. But I think what is not interesting is that if the audience continues to be the same, like heteronormative, white, upper middle class audience that it always has been, I think you can. I think you can keep making that work if you want as a designer. I just find that uninteresting. Well, for to you, but I guess my point yeah. is that when, when there's backlash, is it suddenly the fault of the consumer for lacking appreciation for your creative vision? You know what I mean? I feel like backlash in itself is an attack on a designer's vision. And that's the part they can't really get behind. Is it the fault of the consumer? It's not the fault of the consumer. It's definitely not. But that's what I'm saying. That I think the positioning of this is that if I don't fuck with your shit, then it's my fault for not getting you as a designer or I don't get your vision. Right. It's like this elevation of the designer as be yeah. all end all. It's like the authority. Like you're basically out here running a business, but you're shitting on me when I don't buy your stuff because I don't believe in it. Like it's like biting the hand that feeds you. Well, it's not just right? that, but it's also, I think, I think the premise of believing that what you create is, okay, weirdly, I've, I've just realized something. Flacavento says this, right? Like a, a designer cannot create a collection by ticking every box to please everyone, but his actions and Rapkin's actions don't reflect an understanding of that statement. Because they do want to please everyone. Yeah. Because they're not accepting of the criticism of the backlash, even though they're saying like, oh, we can't please everyone. But ultimately, that's what they want. They want just compliments, yeah. just accolades. Yeah. So I don't like, even though they're saying this, it's like they, they're they using these words to get consumers to be like placated. Like, ah, oh, yeah, you did your best. I get yeah. that you're not going to make me happy. Yeah. I mean, before, before I move on to the next part, I think that if you really just want to have the ability to create what you want, you don't, and you want to divorce yourself from the financial need of making something sustainable, just go be an artist. Go make a one-of-one -one piece. Yeah, it's true. Right? Like, like I, I think that any moment you bring this into some sort of a commercial arena, you're going to be subjected to the opposite side of the market, and that's going to be your consumers. Like, it's always going to be a relationship and a dance between both parties to satisfy each other. Yeah, or I mean, so I said this in the Slack community because someone asked the question, what's the difference between art and design? And I'm pretty sure that I said the difference is that design is with an audience and art is for your self-satisfaction. 
it's still the creation of something, but just design considers mm-hmm. who it's for, right? So a fashion designer such as, should, should we do a specific example from the article? Sure. So it would make it a little bit more concrete. People might remember this one. Prada released a line called Pradamalia and within it was this keychain that was like supposed to be an exaggerated monkey, but it kind of looks like this blackface caricature, right? And then Diet Prada and a lot of people like called them out for putting out this product. And then Prada retracted it and like issued an apology, et cetera. Okay. So I think Prada can make this product if they want. But like, just be honest about your audience, right? Like say your audience is not for minorities, not for black people. Like it's just for like white people who believe a certain thing. You can say that. They didn't, right? They're, they yeah. backed down. Yeah. I mean, I, or I think the one, the one example that does an even better job of communicating that is the DNG ad with the chopsticks, right? Oh, yeah. Like I think that one's even better. And if you're unfamiliar, like... I think end of last year, December or so, there was an ad where there was a Chinese model using chopsticks to pick up stuff like food or whatnot. And obviously D&G and most luxury fashion houses require the support and participation of the Chinese market. Mm-hmm. So if you really believe that and you think it's funny or whatever, then why don't you stand behind it? Obviously, like the backlash was enormous behind it. But I think yeah. ultimately it's like no one's stopping you from putting any ideas on the world. Yeah. Just don't just be okay with someone checking it. Exactly. You know, if if and if if it's not that bulletproof of an idea, then maybe it wasn't a good idea to begin with. And it's um, interesting move on to the, because one more thing. It's interesting because they could choose to defend it. They they have that option. We're not like holding them in a guillotine, you know? Like it's not life or death. Yeah. Arguably DNG or product, they can double down and be like, no, this is our intention. Like it's not, it's not whatever you're saying it is. Yeah. So Rapkin also makes a quote that I believe is really valid, but I think the ending is kind of weak. It's fashion conglomerates operate like any other. The concern is making money, not creativity. As the millennial customer grows in influence, their taste must be catered to. Consumers are empowered as never before, able to reach and affect brands in a way unthinkable even 10 years ago. Fashion is no longer dictated from above and on the surface, its democratization sounds like a good thing, but it has its downsides. Design by community poses a threat to designers' creative freedom. So honestly, I when I read that, I'm like, I could give two shits about a designer's creative freedom because the market itself is sufficiently large in that notwithstanding the challenges of building your own brand, like yeah, marketing, etc., you can do what you want to do and you can find a market for it. It's that... When you get like a, it comes back to and I'm reiterating it, but like if I put something onto the world and you don't like it and suddenly you crumple under the pressure, maybe there's no vision there to begin with, right? Like, And maybe there's, if there's nothing defensible there, then honestly, it's probably not a good fucking idea, right? If the only thing defending it is because you like it, because you want you want it to be that way, then you just have to admit that. You you can't say like, oh no, like this is life-changing. This is world-changing stuff, right? Like you can say, oh, I just like it like that. I truly believe that brands can continue to do what they want to do, but recognize who pays your bills because as Rapkin mentioned, like these fashion houses are in the business of making money, not creativity. 
right? Yeah. But if you have the strength behind your creative vision, then by all means go on and be rewarded, not necessarily in sort of universal dollars earned from a consumer, but by your unfiltered vision. That's that's what I think is really important. I also take issue with the phrase designed by committee poses a threat to designers' creative freedom in this context, because I don't think that the examples he's provided are really designed by committee. Designed by committee is usually, for me at least, it describes the process leading up to an end product. So it's like the internal team at Prada that puts out something mm-hmm. or the internal team at D&G that puts that ad together. The situation in which we're describing where brands put out something and then people respond to it is not designed by committee. That's just consumerism. It does like, do you expect a consumer to have zero response? Is <laughs> yeah. just, um, yeah, it's baffling. And, and you know what? To me, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, yeah, we're overly sensitive right now. Like I think the environment we live in, Social justice warriors are rampant, et cetera. But part of me also thinks that it it forces us to do better, right? There's things that you're forced to account for that maybe in the past you didn't need to account for. But in reality, if our expectations are higher, why not create things that both you personally can stand behind because you've, you've thought it through? But secondly, have the confidence if someone doesn't like it, you know why they don't like it and why they're offended by it or why they don't. They don't, they don't care for it. Yeah. Right. And I think that there's a lack of clarity there because maybe it's just by virtue of the fashion cycle moving so quickly that that amount of research and, and awareness is just lost. There's just no possibility of me spending sufficient amounts of time to kind of dig through everything and uncover what is the the proper way of tackling something. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a shame because you would think that these design processes would happen internally that within the structure of the company, they would have the time to brainstorm an idea and have it go through some kind of oversight and critique process before being released. But instead, like you're saying, because of the cycle, instead what happens is they release something and then the critique happens in public in real time, which is why it's so messy, right? And why it looks like so Mm -hmm. dramatic. No, but I agree. Yes, I think I would agree with Rapkin that our climate now is more sensitive than it used to be. Yeah. But I think we cannot change that as creators. Like I'm not interested in or have the power to as an individual to change that climate. So how can I use it as an opportunity? How can the, even if it's oversensitivity, even if some people are making responses that you're like, oh, that's really a stretch. Like how can you use that to see your work with a better critical eye and be able to explain it and think about it more thoroughly. I should have probably identified a few kind of interesting comments that were in uh, in the op-ed itself at the bottom. Sure. And one thing that's all often been critical is that like there, there needs to be greater diversity, right? Diversity in representation of ideas, concepts, what flies, what doesn't fly. That's one way of looking at it. And I think that ultimately that is kind of the simplest way of finding a solution, right? I mean, it's never going to be perfect, but you're going to be much further along if you have the representation of someone beyond just um, the prototypical white male that's pulling the strings within a fashion house, right? I think that's a, that's a clear way of looking at it. Okay. Yeah. I think what's interesting in the comments is that there is a split. There are people who agree with the article and there are people who don't. 
I think what's interesting is the people who do agree with the article do have a sensation that fashion has become more boring and more bland. But I actually do not think the culprit for that is criticism. I would almost agree that, yeah, fashion has in some ways turned out to be more boring and bland, but maybe we're pointing the finger in the wrong direction. I think there's just the commerciality of it that's ruining it. It's not necessarily yeah. us being overly PC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it's a bit of a false equivalency. But, you know, can I mention one thing that drove me, the thing in this article that makes me the most, like, pull your hair out. Rapkin gives two examples in contemporary fashion from Prada and Gucci. And then he also gives two examples in artistic history of Mapplethorpe and Balthus. Okay, so like two artists who were, he -hmm. calls censored in history. And then he says... I'm not saying a Prada monkey keychain or a Gucci sweater is anything like Macbothorpe's photography or Therese Dreaming by Balthus. Rather, I'm talking about a general climate of censorship from both the right and left. And I think this is really lazy writing. So what are you trying to say by bringing up those four examples then if you're not saying they're the same thing? I don't, I don't see here like what you're doing. I feel that you are trying to get people to make an equivalency between these four examples, and you're just like hedging your bets by saying, oh, I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. Sorry, just my critique of this op-ed structure. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the whole piece itself, I think, whether you agree with it or not, while obviously you and I both don't agree with the op-ed, I definitely find a lot of value in having someone put this to the forefront. And it, it forces us to kind of walk through the different points and to see if we have a counterpoint to it. Yeah. Like that to me is the most valuable thing. No, that's fair. Right? I'm sure I'm sure even if this conversation was had in real life, there would also probably be more points that he could react to, be like, well, I think this and this and this that maybe we weren't thinking about. But yeah. I generally find a lot of interesting thoughts and 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 insights from Eugene Rapkin. This one to me missed the mark, which is I mean it's fine, right? Like he has this position. But Part of me is also recognizing that if this continues to be the point of view that a certain part of fashion is continuing to hold near and dear to themselves, the quicker you have that creative freedom card held close to your chest, the quicker you're going to force emerging markets and or places that don't vibe Mm -hmm. with what you create to go and create their own worlds, Mm -hmm. create their own playgrounds create their own brands, all that other stuff. And yeah. I that's neither good or bad. It's just that, hey, you know what? If I'm in if I'm in China and all of a sudden I feel like none of these brands speak to me because they're from a perspective that I no longer believe in or I cannot identify with, why can't I go and create my own thing? Yeah. Right? Maybe it's not high fashion, maybe it's streetwear, maybe it's whatever. But I think that it's just something that reflects me, is what yeah. you're saying. Is that if I don't see my own values reflected in what's out there and I see a continuation of designers insisting to not reflect my values, then I will start creating my own thing. You're seeing that more and more in markets and I hate calling it a market, but like let's use China as an example where obviously the dominant world of streetwear has traditionally come from the West, but now as they reach a certain level of maturity, they no longer see a need to to consume American streetwear brands, for example, beyond obviously Supreme, whatever. It's like, hey, I have an 
an independent sort of belief in my own culture that I don't need you anymore. And I, I think feel that like is this the is a thing. weird evolution of your thinking because I thought previously that you were really doubling down on China as like collectivist, um, status, hungry kind of consumerism. But I think that at some point, if you're going to, if you create something that you cannot identify with and it doesn't have status to begin with, then what happens? So I, I would say that in general, the, the one thing that I, I've seen change is that in terms of creating value within a collectivist society, like in terms of garnering face and whatnot, I think that social currency isn't necessarily determined by the nationality of something. Mm. I think it did in the past, but I think that you're moving past what it means to, hey, I need to have this foreign brand. Because mm. I think now you're looking at, you know, there are certain things that if they continue to create moments where they're not necessarily creating moments to identify with. Like, let's say I go to... I go to Paris and I get treated poorly by the staff at Celine. Yeah. Right. Suddenly, like, hey, I don't, I don't want this brand anymore, and then start removing things from the list. But I think a better example is like, look at uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese white liquor, like Mao Tai. Mm -hmm. Right. Like in itself, there's, there's going to be moments to create social currency around that, and that's not necessarily a, a foreign brand. I'm just pointing out that right? I think now versus. A year, year and a half ago, I think you have more certainty in this than you used to. I think I have more certainty, but you know what it is? I think it's more an erosion of Western soft power than it is that emerging markets have necessarily felt the need to go and create their own lanes. I mm -hmm. think it was natural that it would happen, but I think it's being accelerated mm -hmm. by an erosion of Western soft power. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think what's also interesting that you mentioned that I didn't respond to is not just talking about this op-ed and the content of it, but also talking about it in the landscape of fashion media. I think Rapkin is necessary. As much as we have Diet Prada and the fashion law, crit criticism like op-eds that Rapkin writes, which he writes many of, are also part of that landscape. And like you said, you know, we cannot just operate in a world where we read, maybe, like for me, we can't just read people that I agree with, right? Like Julie Zerbo. Like I need Rabkin to also find out like what do what in this do I agree? What do I disagree with and why? Yep. That's all for me. I think I I think I got everything off my chest. I think my question is because I don't think Rabkin provides this. Rabkin doesn't really end with, you know, so where do we go from here? So that's my question to you is like, in light of the situation Rafkin describes, even if we don't agree with like his, his angle on it, with the sensitivity, with this situation of like product releases and re recalls, what would you I recommend? I think that I would like to see brands just have a bit more confidence in what they create. Because like you mentioned, like you mentioned before, all these outrage opportunities have been one-sided there hasn't been a pushback from the brand being like, hey, we believe in this and this is why we believe in it, mm -hmm. right? And I think that if they do their homework and, you know, there was an example actually where he references uh, an Alexander McQueen moment from fall, winter 1995. And the collection was called Highland Rape. This is from the uh, Eugene Rapkin yeah. piece. Yeah, And the the collection was about the trauma of England's subjugation of Scotland in the Middle Ages. 
and McQueen was part Scottish. And the models were staggering on the runway and slashed in torn clothes looking like rape victims. Mm -hmm. So some critics accused McQueen of misogyny and in the narrative they had constructed, they weren't entirely wrong. It's just that their assumptions were off the mark. Mm -hmm. So my thing is this, is that nothing's stopping you from creating it, but I think it's intelligent to have a level of sensitivity to the topic and actually communicate it properly. Now, some people might argue that art shouldn't have like, there shouldn't be like a, a little micro essay or a little essay that that accompanies every piece. But I think that if if the whole goal is to communicate an idea or a thought, then shouldn't the clarity be just as important as the actual outcome or the product? Well, I mean, your assumption there is that they are trying to communicate a thought. I suppose that if a fashion designer wants to make something that is private, private in the sense that like they are happy with the with the definition being exclusive to themselves, then yeah, they can be like, oh, F off critics, like I know what I'm doing and not explain it. But like because of the people you and I are, that just doesn't make sense to us because a lot of what we do is... Uh, to an audience or in consideration of other people. So my subject today comes from an article in Quartzy by Rosie Spinks. And the title of the article is The Age of the Influencer Has Peaked. It's Time for the Slacker to Rise Again. And her premise, she begins with saying, you know, Instagram is exhausting to scroll through now. I mean, arguably it's always been exhausting, but the content has kind of changed from lunch and scenic views into life updates, career achievements, public promises, things like that. And she also has this premise of, you know, people in the 90s used to aspire to slacking off and to appear like they're slacking off. And now people aspire to striving hard and making it evident that they're doing so. For example, like in the 90s, celebrities would try to appear like they're relaxing and like not actually trying hard at earning money, whereas now celebrities are seen like doing lots of ads, like doing lots of campaigns and they're okay with it because it's the concept of selling out has kind of eroded. So mm-hmm. she terms this slacker and striver. And she says like, since the 2000s, the slacker has lost ground to the striver and that the pervasive mindset we all operate in now is aspirational. And I feel like we talked about this in some other episode that I've forgotten. But the reason why, and she goes through this too, the reason why our mindset is aspirational is because of the economy that we're in. The you know, shrinking middle class, fewer ways to make a stable income, precarious futures. We're just not as able to live and enjoy ourselves and expect that things are going to show up on our doorstep and that we're going to be able to survive. So I do appreciate that. So she doesn't just come out and like criticize the striver culture. She does explain like why does striver culture exist? It's because of you know an economic environment creating this necessity. So I'm going to pause. I'm going to put a pin here in my explanation of this article and say one of the reasons I picked this is because I did recently share a portfolio update on social media. 
which falls directly within what she's describing about this sort of like striver culture on social media and that necessity. And the thoughts going through my head when I shared it were a mixture. Like I'm proud of my work, but the fact that I was sharing it did feel like I wrote this down in the notes. I wrote slightly embarrassing. And I guess Mm -hmm. why it is, is because, I mean, I'm not that old. I guess I'm an in-between. You and I are kind of in-between. But I did Mm -hmm. still see, oh, being so evidently hardworking is slightly not acceptable. Like, it didn't come totally easily to me. But that's... Yeah, go ahead. The outside world seeing your yes, hard working. I am hardworking. I'm not not you hardworking. Hard, but you're also interested in the work you do, which to me is like you're you're putting effort into your passions. And that's like a little bit of like a change because it's like, well, is it really work? Like, yeah, technically I'm working, but like I I very rarely consider my work to be work of the purest sense. And I think the right. the difference in the definition is that anytime you say work, work is often perceived to be something that you don't want to do. Right. That is the biggest difference. And I think hardworking versus like, like putting effort in, let's say putting effort into work versus putting effort into a passion. Those are two fundamentally different things. Like if I look back on all the shit you've done, like I don't necessarily think you're like, hey, these are things that I like really grinded through. Like you probably emotionally connected to it. And I don't think emotional connection is derived from just pure work. I see what you mean here. Huh. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the transparently being commercial was kind of strange, even though I know that it's a necessity. Because we've talked about this before, about using your personal brand and reach for economic necessity. It still feels strange to do that, even though it's like for my benefit. And I shouldn't be ashamed to use it for my benefit. Like you mentioned you had like pushback or something or like, is or you just personally felt like... No, I didn't have pushback. I'm just talking about my thought process in sharing this. Like in in the fact, because, you know, Rosie Spinks, she says like, oh, it's natural for strivers to be strivers now. Like that it's in our overall culture and that it's acceptable. And I don't know if it's totally acceptable still. Yeah. Well, you know what? This is funny because it relates back to some thoughts I had I shared with you before going on air or before this recording. And it was about taking control of your own personal narrative and not necessarily doing things on a schedule, but just doing things you're truly passionate about. Yeah. Right. And I mentioned that and I was like on the basis that uh, there are certain things that were done out of expectation and that in itself almost killed the vibe a little bit. It was like, hey, you know what? Okay, it's it's Monday morning. I need to do this, this, and this versus, hey, you know what? Like if I don't feel strongly about this and I know that by virtue of not feeling strongly about it, then I won't create the best work. Then what happens then? Like maybe I just need to take a pause on it. And this is something that I need to also be very careful about because there's a difference between, 
you know, if you want to do it on your own schedule, that becomes more artistically driven. Mm -hmm. And if I need to do it on a schedule, then it's because I have a client or I need to Mm -hmm. like sell a service. So I'm very careful about that. But I think when it comes to social media, there are parts of it where you can kind of create a new middle ground where part of you might feel as though, you know, great example, make an Instagram more, most recently we almost haven't followed the same level of like, okay, every two days or every whatever so often we need to put something up. It's kind of like when we feel something needs to go up, it will go up. Yeah. Right. And what's really weird, really weird is that like by virtue of us just adopting a more passionate approach, like, and this is not necessarily the indicator of success, but like it's actually grown based off the strength of more impactful posts Mm -hmm. than it is based around, okay, you know what? Every two days, expect something new. Which is weirdly like a flip in our own internal strategy because we were more concerned previously about consistency of a schedule. But I I, think what's changed... Yeah, you go ahead. Yeah, I think what's changed a little bit is that like... And this is maybe in some ways a little bit narcissistic. I should just own it. It's like, honestly the shit we put out is already going to be better than the majority of what's out there. So like, I think internally the the belief is that that in itself means that if you do it properly, when it does go up versus just doing it because I have a schedule to follow, the hopeful impact will be that it'll be better than what's generally out there anyways. Right. Well, this goes on to another part of the article that I wanted to talk about, which she says, so what's next? What's coming ahead in the future? Like what the young people are heading towards. This is a quote. Their attitude towards the internet is arguably far more sophisticated, suspicious, and interested in ephemeral content that disappears rather than more permanent content that helps establish a commercially valuable identity. And this is linked to this other really popular article that was recently done in The Atlantic called The Decline of the Instagram Aesthetic, Mm -hmm. which is relevant to what you're saying. You know, it's more like sharing when you feel the need to share and sharing in the format that feels right instead of being the format that you think is going to get you more followers or more likes or is more acceptable in some way. Yeah. 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 I think what's interesting as me for like a larger overview question is how are the things we produce also producing ourselves? And this is something I've been talking about in university. (laughs) And what we've been talking about is like the things that we make wind up making us, right? So like on a societal level, um, Facebook, Instagram, those products, which I don't make, but are made by humans, wind up shaping society. And in the same Mm -hmm. way, like the posts that I put out inform who I am. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's interesting if you break free, if you try to break free from the expectations of what you share, then you're breaking free from this. You're trying to break free from that relationship where what you're producing is actually producing who you are to go back to Mm -hmm. who you are genuinely producing something. Yeah. I I would say that... Generally speaking, the place we are right now is actually pretty predictable because I think that you saw that we are entering a point of unsustainability. And have you, I'm sure you've heard me use the pendulum analogy before, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, like it's essentially that. It's like you've gone to a point where the extremities have been tested. You know that no one really wants to be there. So let's find a way to kind of bring it back. Well, it's not so much that no one wants to be there. I don't think that's how the pendulum works. I think the reason it's a pendulum is because it's natural. Like when something reaches the, the top of its curve, the top of its ascent, it naturally falls back the other way. This is why trends are like recurrent. Yeah. Right. So it's just like we've reached peak saturation. I think that it's just essentially that it's we've gone to a point where it, you've tested it. It's not it's not fun to be there or you don't want it to always be a reflection of what you're doing. So you kind of need to refine a proper middle ground. Mm-hmm. That's really what it comes down to. I mean, it, everything, any new technology seems to go through this phase, right? Where you're going to go and test it, the upper limits of what you can do. And then soon something comes in. I do have one one aspect of the Striver culture that I don't think Sphinx... It's not really the point of her article, but something that came to my mind is that in our Striver culture, we see a lot more of the types of work people are doing. And we mm. kind of come adjacent to people we don't know and we see the work that they do. And I think that that is a good situation because I saw a tweet mm. recently from someone saying that they aspire to one day not need a portfolio website. And I actually don't think that's a good aspiration to have because I think like when you reach that stage, it means that the work you're doing is exclusive to people you know and the networks that you operate in. Whereas like having a website, talking about it, if we all do that, that means we come into, we encounter people we wouldn't expect to encounter. Mm-hmm. Then that's it, It's sort of adjacent to it, the article. It is interesting because if you really want to break it down, it's in an ultra connected world, we actually sometimes need to stop for a second and realize that we're not fostering true interconnectivity right it's just strengthening it's just strengthening existing bonds mm. but i think the opportunity for true connectivity is there totally i think you have to work at it but it's yeah. it's, it's a possibility with the tools that we have that's it I for me i don't have anything else to add yeah yeah do you want to do any housekeeping oh sharice and i have something exciting for the next show yes that is true we or should are, we just drop it now? I mean, if you've made it this far, this. if you made it this far, then like, well, anyways. it's not it's not that big a change. It's not that big a change. We're doing a name change, but not really. We're gonna change from making it up, where making is spelled M-A-E-K-A-N, to making it up, which is what the pun is anyway, and is a lot easier to search and less confusing. Yeah, this is. I mean, we should just come straight. It's actually more of a functional change of anything. It is it's a functional It's just confusing. Change. Yeah. Well, think about it. If you search making, it's like, why is there a making feed? And then why is there also a making it up feed? Yeah. And when you tell people yeah. that the podcast is called Making It Up, they don't think that it's M-A-E-K-A-N, it up. So yeah. it, it gets difficult. Um, so we're doing that. We're doing a album art change just giving it a bit of a refresher. We've already done this format change where we're doing straight subject, subject, and then, you know, the banter bit at the end. Um, Anything else? No, I think that is everything. Yeah, everything else stays the same in the sense that still me and Eugene (laughs) um, talking on a weekly basis. 
about culture news. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in learning more about Macon, reading and listening to our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us directly at sharice at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, and eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. Or you can DM our Instagram account at macon. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>